Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to another episode of Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition. Breaking down the stronghold bad opinions and false notions of our common enemy, the devil, and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together we are studying Christian dogma because we believe that when God speaks, he does so in order that we would have his word, hold his word, believe his word, and that means speak his word back to him. St. Paul exhorts all Christians to hunger for the truth, to watch your life and doctrine closely, to persevere in these things, for he says the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. You, however, he says, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. I have guests with me today to try to help us do this, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Brian Flammy. They're both pastors out there at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. We're going to be looking at Francis Pieper's Dogmatics Volume 1, picking up around page 36, moving at a snail's pace, but you know, trying to pull all the, the widgets and depths out for you so that you can be confident that what you are confessing is, in fact, our Lord's holy, everlasting word. Brian and Brian, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Hi. So we're in a section that is dealing with what Dr. Pieper calls absolute religion. And it's kind of a foreign way of talking to us, but he's driving at the same point he's been driving at all along, which is that what we have received from God as Christianity is complete. It, It is perfect, not just in a moral sense, but there's not really any way for us to add to it. We, we can take away from it, kind of. I mean, historically speaking, it's not going to be diminished even if we don't receive the benefit of it. But as we speak about it, we can we can leaven it out and make it no longer a, a truth anymore. We can make our own lives be part of it. But you can't you can't really overcome this. It's going to prove itself true on the last day no matter what. So it is absolute in, in, in several senses. One, that it is complete. One, that it cannot be overcome. And, and then finally, where he's driving here is that the scriptures are therefore also complete. We don't need more revelations or, or more word from God. You guys were talking a little bit before the show as well about a rather lengthy footnote. Uh, begins on page 35 and leads into page 36. And that's where uh, Pastor Schultz and I left off last time. And I don't know if that directly drives with what we were just, what I was just saying there or not, but I, I certainly heard you say the word tetelestai and golly, we, we can't skip that word. Yeah, it's here in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, uh, uh, that, that uh, Peeper is quoting. And he says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. And, and that's the word uh, teleoi. And he has to talk about what does that mean? And the perfect, he says, are not the mature Christians, those who have uh, gone to the higher sphere of thorough and comprehensive insight, but rather they're perfect by the operation of the Holy Spirit when they believe the gospel. This has to do with the whole debate between, really, between the Lutherans and the Catholics about what it means to be a saint. Does it mean to have achieved some sort of complete sanctification? Or does it mean to have the forgiveness of sins? And and Peter's going to argue here, which is really quite great, that the Christians are the perfect ones because the gospel has forgiven all, their, all of their sins. And the gospel has delivered to them the perfect obedience of Jesus. So the perfection is to be a saint, and it belongs to, to all Christians. And, and this is pointing to the fact that the Christian religion is perfect, uh, and therefore it, it also makes us perfect. It delivers that perfection of God to us in the gospel. We can't really ever say that enough. It, it, Lutherans, maybe it's the only thing we ever say, but we can't really ever say that enough. That the righteousness by which we are saved is not our own. 
and that all my good works, it's not like they're bad. I mean, they, they are in the sense that they're, they're plagued with my sin, but like if I help old lady across the street, like that, that's good. That was good for the old lady. So it's not like it's bad to do good works. But when we're talking about the category of salvation, it just has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the righteousness that's alien to us, outside of us. And to use, I, I like to quote Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. He, he likes to talk about the totally sufficient justification, right? I mean, how many adverbs can you throw on the front to, to impress upon us the idea that there's nothing more to add to Jesus? Yeah, it's interesting because for most people, they think of, uh, you know, your salvation as a goal of some sort or a destination, right? It's that thing, uh, it's that, thing that you're always striving towards, uh, that you're always uh, reaching after. Uh, but what St. Paul says and also what uh, we Christians confess is that baptism is the goal. Baptism, that, that, uh, that sacrament by which we uh, enter into the Holy Christian Church, provides everything that we need. Uh, to save us by clothing us with the righteousness of Jesus. When we have this righteousness by faith, even as little babies have this righteousness by faith at the beginning of their lives when their parents bring them to baptism, that's it. They're complete. Everything that they need to stand before God with certainty and with confidence is provided for them. It's the difference between climbing a ladder and being on board a ship. And I've used that before, and I'm going to use it again and again because I just can't think of a better metaphor for the way that we view justification, the way that we view, frankly, even sanctification, the good works that we're doing, they're still on the ship, right? We're not climbing this ladder to paradise. We're not We're not going to achieve moral perfection in the heart in this age. But we are looking forward to a land, <laughs> a destination in this sense, uh, the, the resurrection, where moral perfection that we believe we have now will have its way with our bodies as well. But in all of this, then, Dr. Pieper kind of brings us back to something that you could say it's a bit of a hobby horse for him so far in the book. On Again, top of page 36, it is thus clear that in order to preserve the absolutely unique character of the Christian religion, you know, this absolute character of grace, absolute grace, he says to preserve this, we must keep the vicarious satisfaction inviolate. And if, just to show how funny he is, he doesn't say that straight up the way I said it. He actually says, you have to keep the satisfactio vicaria inviolate, and just to make you feel bad, like you don't know enough big words. But the, the, the idea he's getting at is that the vicarious satisfaction of Christ cannot be diminished or limited or, or couched in anything other than, yes, it is absolute amen. It's not, it's not just a key, uh, I mean, a, a kind of a hobby horse. It's it's the key that holds the whole argument together. The vicarious satisfaction is that thing which is unique to Christianity. It is only Christianity that has the blood of God, the incarnation, uh, and the bearing of our sins, and the suffering in our place to win for us salvation. There might be commonalities that Christianity has with other religions or theologies or philosophies in regards to the law and morality, but this is what makes Christianity unique, and it makes it, as Pieper says, absolutely unique. In other words, there is no uh, there is no place where any other confession or any other doctrine or any other teaching has anything like this pure gospel. And so it is um, uh, it, it is this doctrine and teaching. And in fact, before it's a doctrine and teaching, it is this event of the incarnation and death and resurrection that sets. Uh, Christianity apart, and and Pieper is making the same point: is that not only is it, is not only is the vicarious satisfaction the thing that makes Christianity absolutely unique, it is the thing that makes us absolutely perfect. 
So the perfection that belongs to the Christian religion is the same perfection that belongs to the Christian worked by the vicarious satisfaction, by the death of Je- the suffering and death of Jesus in our place. So it's from that that, the, that Christianity draws its perfection. There's nothing more needed. When Jesus said, it's finished, he, he gives not only to his church, but also to his Christians the absolute uh, perfection of the forgiveness of sins delivered to us at justification. I love how you tied that down to the physicality of the blood of God, right? So I remember in college, I would sometimes, I was kind of a God-fear. I wouldn't call myself really a Christian at this point, but I was a God-fear who'd grown up in a Christian church. And so I would argue for the existence of God and and kind of say I'm, I was a Christian, although I couldn't defend anything really apologetically. But in these arguments with these philosophy majors and, and writers that I was studying with, uh, and most of them being kind of atheistic or, or maybe Hindu, but not realizing that they were Hindu, they would, they would pull out this kind of argument. They would say, well, how can you say that Christianity is the only true religion? How can you say that it's different than other religions? And then they'd pull out this kind of classic, but but kind of silly thing. We're all a bunch of men in the dark, in a dark room, and there's an elephant in the room, and, and we're all trying to figure out who the elephant is, but like one of us is holding the tail and one of us is holding the trunk. So, so how can you say that, you know, just cause you got the tail, that that's the only way to find your way to God. And what cuts through that argument, that silly argument, really like a knife is, well, the way I say it is that there's only one man whose blood is God's blood. Only one man who died and rose again. It's, it, this isn't a proposition about theory. This is a, a person. Right. Precisely. I mean, the reason why people try to make these sorts of arguments about how Christianity is but one facet or one uh, uh, one example of the ph- greater phenomenon known as religion is because they do not know the difference between the law and the gospel. And that in the gospel, it's not that uh, obedience or works are required from us. Uh, the gospel is that God became man, uh, that this man bore our sins and that he suffered the penalty for our sins on the cross, thereby making satisfaction for those sins and justifying us, making us holy and righteous in God's sight. No other religion in, in, in the entirety of the whole world says that. And that is what separates Christianity from this mess of paganism and atheism that you find in the world. And as he's talking about the the attacks on this vicarious atonement, and he has already talked a little bit about the kind of scholastic arguments against it that were happening in his day, and they are still happening in our day and age. But he seems to be concerned about a bigger issue, which is simply works righteousness. So right after he says that we must keep the vicarious satisfaction inviolate, doesn't mean not purple, (laughs) it means means unbroached, right? Uh, He says, if we held that the work of Christ did not fully reconcile God, but needed to be supplemented by the infused grace, he has that in quotes, the keeping of the commandments of God and of the church, as Rome teaches, or by the reshaping of man's life into his divine form, as the modern Protestants teach, we should thereby divest the Christian religion of its specific character and reduce it to the level of the religious religions of the law. So his big concern here is works righteousness. And what I, what I think is maybe most valuable to pull apart here is the infused grace. What's that thing? What's that doing there? And then the fact that he says this is the same thing 
as the reshaping of man's life, or what we I think we'd say today, uh, transformation, right? So on the one hand, you got Rome and the Protestants thinking they're these massively different groups, but effectively they're just using different words for the same heterodoxy. That's right. The basic, um, I mean, the basic doctrine of the scriptures, It's this is not very complicated. It, it's simply Jesus is the Savior. <laughs> Christ is Savior. He's the one who dies for us. And, and every false doctrine is going to be a step away from that. Well, Jesus is the one who helps me on the way to salvation. Jesus is the goal of my salvation, the shape into which I take in my Christian life or whatever. And Peeper's able to see that the articulation of what is called the gospel or the central truth of the religion, both in the Catholic Church and in the Protestant Church, is a diminishment from the, from the work of Jesus as the Savior. It's going to take away from that. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to steal glory from Christ, and the result is stealing comfort from us. So whenever any, even the, the closest thing uh, to the Lutheran church, which he's going to look on one side and see the Catholics and the other side and see the Protestants, these are closer to, to the confession than, say, Hinduism or Buddhism or, or Islam or whatever. But even their articulation of the Christian religion does not preserve the vicarious satisfaction, and therefore it turns the law into the gospel. It's, it's like you have a glass of, you know, this old catechism picture, you have a glass of water and you put a little bit of dirt in it and it's no longer water, it is now mud. This is the same thing that happens with law and gospel. If you have the gospel and you add a little bit of law to it, it is no longer the gospel, it's the law. And that's what uh, the, the, the infusion of grace and the, the life conformed to God uh, does. It takes away the absolute-ness uh, and the perfectness of our Christian confession. So uh, what the Protestants and the, the Romans would say is, uh, you know, we hold not so much to a vicarious satisfaction, but rather something like a vicarious semi-satisfaction, right? Uh, that someone else has to come alongside the work that Jesus has done to bring it to completeness uh, so that you are finally uh, reconciled in God's sight. Yeah. That's, that's uh, a, effectively what the infused word if we kind of take it out of the, the theological categories, which always scare us away, I, I'm always amazed at how, how many words we know that we just don't want to know because suddenly we're using them to talk about theology. But I mean, if, I remember having an infuser uh, that it was this like thing we're supposed to squirt juice into meat when, we, when we're cooking it and it's going to give it flavor, right? So you'd put the juice into the meat and it would, it would spread throughout the entire meat. And change its flavor. So infused grace is it's not it's not a covering that covers you entirely. It's this kind of power which would be put into you, but it, it needs to be completed by you. And as Rome teaches it, this means that that grace is just the beginning of your righteousness, but the the final righteousness needs to be achieved by you in present works. And those would be you know the commandments and or well the church's commandments, no fish on Fridays, that kind of thing. And that idea is really not so different from the modern Protestant or or the modern Pentecostal, particularly their view of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit sort of a power that comes upon you that allows you to live a better life. Yeah, that's right. So in, by gratia infusa or the infused grace, you know, the idea is that uh, uh, it's a good idea that the human soul and the powers of the soul are corrupted uh, such that it cannot uh, uh, please God or do works that are pleasing to God, right? Uh, and then, by grace, the, the, the substance of the soul is somewhat restored, right? And its powers are restored. And then you can begin this process of sanctification or doing those works uh, to make yourself holy, right? 
uh, they kind of borrow from Aristotle's ethics, right? By practicing a thing and by doing a thing, you actually become the, uh, this, the, uh, this virtuous kind of person or this good person. And uh, uh, now that the, you know, the powers of my soul are restored, I can be actually love God and start loving my neighbor. And I'm always working towards the perfection or the completion uh, uh, of that work of grace. And so just by how they uh, conceive of uh, infused grace, it, it necessitates human work alongside it uh, uh, to bring it to some kind of completion. It's not as if when they speak about infused grace is that your uh, soul is perfected such that uh, uh, you are now justified in God's sight. Rather, they said, very well, you've been given the equipment that you need. Start getting after it, you know, start working on it. And, and perhaps, perhaps if you work hard enough, uh, uh, you will actually become holy in God's sight. I think you're, you're quoting of Aristotle there. I'm not really familiar with his ethics at all. But I am familiar with the idea that you quoted from it, and I think it's at the heart of what original sin is actually all about. This idea that I become good by doing good, which is totally backwards. Real goodness from God is the other way around. I am made good, and then I do good, because I already am good. And and so, because I'm already evil, all I can do now is evil. In fact, because I'm evil, if I try to do good, I'm going to do it in an evil way. I'm going to do it for my own benefit. I'm going to get sanctified so I can look at myself and say, look how sanctified I am, right? I'm I'm going to do it backwards. Adam, when he ate from the fruit, thought he was going to become more good by doing good. Rather than simply believing he was already as perfect as he ever was going to get and couldn't get any better. And so doing the good thing of of not taking of the tree uh, as a result. So it's it's the car before the horse thing there. And that Aristotle taught this and that Rome picked it up. It's, It's just natural law. I should say, not natural law, but but the opinion of the law kind of backing us again, only the opinion of the law applied to the to the chief error, which is that faith somehow is a work that can can create a future goodness. That's right. There is some, I mean, there is is social benefit to some people acting good, of course, and we can rejoice in that. But the pictures that Jesus gives is the fruit, at the tree and the fruit. You know, uh, the, if, the, if you have a bad tree, you get bad fruit. If you have a good tree, you get good fruit. So the, the thing that happens first is the goodness of the tree, both by faith and also by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then the thing that follows uh, is the good fruit. And and you're exactly right. If we work backwards, you start taping apples uh, to a pine tree and you say, look, pineapples, it doesn't work. <laughs> That's terrible. Please that was don't ever terrible. make that joke again. <laughs> that, was, that was very bad. It was blasphemous even. So you mentioned, Pastor Wolfmiller, earlier uh, uncertainty. And that's that's where... Uh, he's going to be going here next, and we got it. We got a few minutes before the break still. So, he says the the assurance of grace and of sonship with God, without the vicarious atonement, would be replaced by. Then he uses a special language here because again he just likes twenty five cent words, but I like them too. So I, by the monstrum insertudinous, uh, the monster of uncertainty, and and I get this picture sort of of a. a closet hiding darkness monster like a, a something I'm afraid of as a child but it's really it's, it's much more than that it's not it's not like the cookie monster or something from Sesame Street or it's like the the greatest demon that ever was yes that's right it's a, it, it, I mean the picture of a monster is great because what peeper is able to do is he 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 paints the picture of the of the of the result of uncertainty if you if you don't have the gospel pure 
then the thing that happens is glory is taken away from God, comfort is taken away from the sinners, Un- uncertainty is introduced, and uncertainty is like a devouring dragon in the conscience. Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, it just eats you up. It demolishes you. There's a place where Melanchthon says in the Book of Concord that for Christians, uncertainty is worse than death. Hmm. And Luther talks about this, how, how uh, just talking about, for example, the Genesis commentary, how it happens with when Cain kills Abel. He first has, he, he lacks faith, and then he becomes a hypocrite. Then he becomes a murderer. Then he becomes a, a justifier of himself. And finally, the very last place that this ends is despair. Hmm. And we see that despair in in Judas, we see that despair in King Saul. We see that that monster of uncertainty, which leads to death. And Pieper sees it creeping around in every theology, in the Catholic theology, in the Protestant theology, in every other religion of the law. There is this monster of uncertainty that's there in the shadows, ready to devour you. What an interesting thought about despair ultimately being uncertainty unleashed upon you. Uh, that's just worth pondering in its own right there, that that when I you think about someone who is in, and I, I personally have struggled with depression and continue to do so, and when I'm in my most despondent state, it's the it's the inability to to see past where I am, right? I, I can't see a better future, even though I can like tell myself about it. I can't I can't feel a better future. And it is it is a it is a bizarre form of uncertainty. And maybe this is what makes me like so so insistent upon being a Lutheran it is because it's the place where I have finally found, something that doesn't change. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we have an anchor for our hope, and that is uh, in the word of God. You know, uh, I am not uncertain because I have certainty that God loves me because he tells me, right? When I am baptized, he says, you are my child. When I go to church on Sunday, he says, I forgive you. Not, hey, you are forgiven if you have, you know, done X, Y, or Z, but no, uh, I forgive you. Christ has died for you. Uh, it's a fact. It's done. This monster of uncertainty is canonized in the Council of Trent. Uh, Trent says, if anyone says that they can be certain that they're saved, let them be anathema. Like, can you believe that? So that so that when Pieper's pointing out to the problem with Rome here, he's saying this is not accidental. This is fundamental to their doctrine. And we see it on the other side of things in the Protestants, whereas uh, I, I remember being in, in the liberal youth group and um, it was almost like you were being trained to doubt. It was like a godly thing to question uh, the, God's promises and God's word, this sort of thing. That's that's um, that's like feeding the monster of uncertainty. And that monster of uncertainty is a devourer. It will never be full It will in, until it is thrown into the lake of fire. This monster of uncertainty will be devouring the children of men. So we got the monster of uncertainty, and then we got the monster of bad jokes made by Pastor Wolfmuller trying to be funny on Cross Defense. We're talking with Pastor Wolfmuller and Pastor Brian Flammy, both out there at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, about absoluteness and how Christianity is so sure you could literally stake your eternal life on it. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and we'll be back in just a moment. Right now, you can double the impact of your giving to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. They got their dollar-for-dollar match. It's back. A fantastic opportunity to help new Christians, new Lutherans in places like Slovakia, Mongolia, and Japan have at their fingertips fantastic biblical resources like the Small Catechism, a children's garden of Bible stories, and Good News Magazine. Did you know that the cost to translate and print one small catechism in a foreign language is only $5? 
Now imagine just how far that $5 goes as a tool put into the hands of a faithful pastor to help his people learn the language of the Bible, the importance of confessing the same faith once for all delivered to the saints, and of course that proper distinction between law and gospel, that the gospel is that Jesus wants you to be his own and live under him in his kingdom, which is of course why he shed his precious blood for you. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is working in over 105 languages with over 840 titles published in 95 of those languages. I'm not kidding when I say they're doing phenomenal work all around the globe, and they are certainly worth contacting and supporting with your mission giving. You can learn more about the Lutheran Heritage Foundation at lhfmissions.org. That's lhfmissions.org. Come on, just go ahead right now. Head over, give them five bucks. That'll get two catechisms translated and printed. Totally worth your time. Welcome back to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. Your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, chatting with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Brian Fammy. Hi, Fammy. Flammy. They are both pastors out there at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. We're talking about Christianity and its absoluteness and how this is ultimately very good news for us. After dealing with the the ravenous beast, the, the dangerous creature, the Godzilla of uncertainty in the conscience caused by not knowing that Jesus is enough. Peeper is is not one to kind of leave us unsure. But, he says, top of page 37, volume 1, but, he says, as long as we teach and believe that Christ's vicarious atonement has fully reconciled God and that we are thereby fully justified by faith and have peace with God, Christianity will be for us Eo ipso, more Latin, the absolute religion. Eo ipso, it doesn't literally mean by virtue of the fact, but it's kind of what it kind of what it means. It's just it can't not be anything but an absolute religion if we maintain that the vicarious atonement has reconciled us to God. There's some Bible verses there I want to go look at, but first, your guys' thoughts? Well, they had the word fully there, and that's the key thing that he's working on. The vicarious atonement fully reconciles us to God so that we are fully justified by faith. And that fully is what's giving us the absoluteness of the gospel. So it's not, the, the, the vicarious satisfaction leaves nothing to be done. It, it's complete. We are completely reconciled to God. We are completely justified by faith. And that is what um, speaks to the absoluteness of the work that the Lord has done. I think it's interesting. Most people probably uh, assume that when it comes to my work and God's work, this exists on some sort of continuum, right? Some kind of sliding scale that I could slide the scale more towards me, right? So I give 75%, God gives 25%, or perhaps this, you know, the scale could be slid in the other direction where God does 75% and I only do 25%. But uh, Peeper is saying, no, it's one or the other. Either God does everything and giving his son into death for the sins of the world, or I do everything. And, in that, and, and uh, by trying to do everything myself, I am still in my sins and, and condemned. Uh, uh, there is no sliding scale. Either Jesus uh, is uh, the vicarious satisfaction uh, or he is not. There's there's nothing in between. That's so important that, that if that if God does not do everything, then it doesn't really matter however much he might do. I still have to do everything because that little bit that's left is is entirely up to me. Right. That's, and and whatever is left leaves room for that monster of uncertainty, yep. you know. So even if I assume that God does most of the work in saving me 
And I thought, and, and even if the smallest thing was left to my control, right? So if I'm a good Armenian, what's left to my control is that I make my decision or my, uh, uh, my choice for God, which seems like such a small thing. And yet we see how oftentimes uh, these American evangelicals and these Arminians are, are, are plagued and they are afflicted with the thought as to whether or not I have truly chosen God, right? Have I really made my decision? Is it a genuine decision? The devil's going to jump on that one little thing and turn it into the Godzilla that wrecks your faith. A little leaven leavens the entire lump. And that's, that's talking not just about the church. That's talking not just about uh, doctrine. That's talking about y- your faith, ultimately. Or, as Pastor Wolfmiller would say, um, a, few, a few pineapples ruin a good fig tree. Something like that. Um, if that makes any sense. Now, this is why this whole thing is why the solas of the Reformation are so important, by the way, because everybody had grace and faith and scripture. Yeah, it's to it's to eliminate everything else. It's not faith and it's not grace and or scripture. And because if you have an and on there, then the thing that matters is the and if salvation is Jesus and my choice or Jesus and a little bit of my work, then the thing that actually matters is the and my choice and my work. And it it grows and destroys the um, it grows and destroys the whole thing. This is I mean, it's the, the Catholics didn't care that the Lutherans preached faith. Well, maybe faith troubled them a little bit. They didn't care that they preached grace and that they preached scripture. They, what troubled them was the alone. Yeah. And that's the thing that matters. So speaking of scripture. He points us as he's as he's trying to prove that we are fully reconciled with God and thereby justified by faith. He points us at this point to Romans chapter 3, verse 28, which reads this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, in his context, it's kind of sitting there by itself, uh, somewhat of a conclusion to what came before. And so it, you really got to see it as, as the capstone of 21 and following, that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and you got to kind of put the all in from the, the way the, the sentence is going, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's that word satisfaction, right? As a, literally vicarious satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith, and we might say faith alone, because we have these exclusive things that are they're coming up. Or he's gonna, I'll, I'll point that out again in a moment. What, what I mean by exclusive particles, um, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. That is God's true justice is the fact that He's merciful. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law, which is to say, I have to stop boasting to become good enough? Is that some kind of new commandment by a law of works? No, 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 no. The boasting is excluded by the law of faith, which is that it's just, there's no room for me to point to myself when I'm pointing to Jesus. For we hold that one is justified by faith, exclusive particle, apart from works of the law. That is this separate thing. It's without the works of the law. It is faith alone. And faith itself thereby cannot be a work either. That's right. There's so much here. This is the verse, by the way, that got Luther in trouble because he translated it faith alone. Yep. And the Catholics came along and said, hey, there's no alone there. And Luther said, no, you, you just in German, you got to have the alone there. It, otherwise, it won't make any sense. And I, I first, 
uh, have seen some Catholics come along and say, actually, you know, uh, they'll admit that Luther is right about that. But he goes on to make the point that you were um, talking about in his open letter on translating that the that the it's the exclusive participles that demand this sort of thing, especially when faith is put uh, there against works. That the thing that justifies is not it doesn't just say we're justified by faith. It says we're justified by faith apart from works. Yeah. It's. I mean, it, it's made even more just a couple of inches down the Bible in chapter four, verse five. It, it's even clarified even more to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. It could have just simply said the, the one who has faith is accounted as righteousness, but it, it, it has to exclude works from this thing to the one who doesn't work. Apart from the law, we're justified so that so that faith stands alone as that which which clings to the the gift of God, the the promise of of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins won for us by the death of Jesus on the on the cross. The faith alone is is doing this, and if anything else is added in there, then faith becomes of no effect. Yeah, I've got a question for you guys, though. I mean, isn't faith Christian faith a kind of work? I mean, I mean, we could think about faith as is you know believing as you know reaching out to grabbing onto Jesus or something like that. Uh, in what sense is uh, St. Paul speaking about faith here? I mean, I, I mean, what, my, what I'm getting at is that, uh, um, it, especially as Christians, right, who live according to the promise, who live by trust in the promise, you know, we, we can see that faith is living and active, that faith uh, desires its object, right? But when St. Paul is speaking about faith here, he is speaking about it in such a way that works are excluded, even the so-called subsequent work of faith, which belongs properly to our sanctification, not our justification. The way that I would kind of kind of jump in on that is to say that, that faith, by definition, can't be something I ultimately do in this. I can't make myself believe something. I believe it because it is trustworthy or believable in and of itself. But I can't convince myself of something, no matter how hard I want to say, I'm going to believe, you know, uh, tomorrow's going to be a good day. It, it really doesn't matter if there's no proof for that. So that faith as a work, insofar as it is a work, is a reaction to something. It's, it's something is it's responding. It's the counterpunch to promise. And in that sense, it's not a work which saves. It is the resulting, if you can call it that, I guess, the resulting fulfillment of the first commandment, not by loving God with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul, but by having ears which hear the promise that I am absolved. It is a fine line there, though, because you don't want to deny the human interaction with faith, that we actually are believing, right? Uh, we're not these robots with kind of a pocket of infused faith uh, sitting inside of us. But it is, it is in no way like this thing I do in response, which makes the promise contingent upon it. It's the other way around. The promise itself is going to engender faith by being trustworthy. I think that's helpful. This distinction that, you know, sometimes the Bible will talk about the strengthening of our faith or um, to, that we trust in God when we're dying, or even that some people have an, a special gift of faith. It, it speaks of faith as part of that sanctified life that we do trust in God when we go are going about and doing our works and our deeds and all this sort of stuff. So it's faith according to the first commandment that we trust in God. But there is a uh, and and people will get into this in volume two, which you'll get to in the year twenty fifty nine or something. Slightly before uh, Concord in, Matters gets through the apology article four. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. So um, where people will talk about, you know, uh, fides reflectiva, what the confession's called, fides specialis, and all these kind of different shapes of faith. And that's, and that's important. I mean, th- th- that distinction is helpful to see here, that what Paul's talking about is faith as opposed to works, so that the faith that he's talking about here is not a work. It, in fact, faith is the anti-work. Uh, faith is what you do when God gives you a promise, whereas a work is what you do when God gives you a command. I, I so want to I want to jump back in on that because it's it's so spot on here. It, it gets to how we translate things. So we 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 often in English we'll talk about justification by faith, but another way of translating that same word is is through faith. Right? Faith, in a sense, is always there in mankind, even in fallen man. It's just misplaced faith. Is faith in the wrong thing? So uh, while I was saying a moment ago that I, I, I can't make more faith by trying harder, I also can't help but believe things. The, I just do, right? The question is, do I believe things that are true? Or if I'm going to use the trust language, do I trust in something that's trustworthy or in something that's a total total lie? Right. And, let, and so let's contrast that with what you do with a, with a, with a command. If I give you the command, um, hey, do 10 jumping jacks, and you come and you say, oh, I believe you. You say, well, I didn't give you anything to believe. I gave you something to do. But if I give you a, a promise, I could do 10 jumping jacks in four seconds and you stand up and start doing jumping jacks. You've also not understood what I've, I didn't give you something to do. I gave you something to believe so that the gospel is not something for us to do. It is something for us to believe. Christ died for your sins. There's no work there. In fact, the very nature of the activity of the death and resurrection of Jesus completely excludes anything for me to do at all. Dr. Pieper also then takes this certainty of justification and points us to Romans chapter 5 with what the result of this is, which we know, you know, dying and going to heaven is not exactly right, but but Christians are are saved for eternal life, but there's a present salvation as well. And Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through or by faith, you know, because this has happened, because we know this, the result is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I always have to kind of harp on this one. It's it's so dominant today to think of peace as a feeling. And whenever you say even the peace that passes understanding, we think of it as some sort of feeling in the soul. I'm convinced the peace that passes understanding is the mercy of God upon me that I cannot comprehend. When I kind of ask, why am I saved and not others? I'm, I'm wrestling with the peace God has declared toward me that surpasses my understanding. We have peace with God. There's no more hostility between us and God. This is through Jesus. Verse Two, through him, we have also obtained access through faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, or I always translate that as we are comforted in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we we are comforted in, in our sufferings. I don't think it's by our sufferings. I think it's in the midst of our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce, produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope is in the life of the world to come. That will not put us to shame. It will not disappoint because God's love has already been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So the life of the world to come, we know is going to be complete. And the way we know it's going to be complete is because of this faith in our justification that sits here in the present. Yeah, think about this for a sec. Uh, that in the midst of sufferings, we are at peace with God. And, and I'm glad that you talked about peace not being sort of a subjective state. You know, I feel something in my heart. Uh, this peace is that the enmity, the warfare between God and man has come to an end in the death of Jesus. Uh, that by Jesus' death, God no longer is angry with you. 
uh, he no longer hates you because of your sins, but in fact, uh, Jesus loves you for the sake of his, the death of his son, Jesus, you know, so that in the midst of sufferings, the Christians find comfort in the death of Jesus, that even as these things are happening to me, I know it's not because God is mad at me. It's not because God is, is uh, uh, hating me. Uh, rather, all of these things even, even if I can't understand it, uh, even all of these things come from a place of God's love. And, and this is great to get back to Peeper's point that, that, that Flamey is uh, kind of pushing us towards there is that there are things in this life that are incomplete. I mean, my hope is incomplete. My character is incomplete. My suffering is incomplete. My virtue is incomplete. My keeping of the law is incomplete. But what's not incomplete, what is perfect is my peace with God, my justification my salvation, that's complete. And that's, if we were to look for the completeness or perfection of the Christian religion in some sort of moral perfection or some sort of uh, completely sanctified character or whatever, we would miss it. But the perfection of the of the faith is in the work that God has done, the, the enmity being com- completely taken away between us and the Father, Son, and Spirit, and that joy that we have that results uh, from it. So, so this is the perfection of the faith. It's in the gospel, in the in the doctrine of justification. And as you say there, getting back to Peeper's point, he doesn't use the word perfection. He used the word absolute. Christianity will be for us the absolute religion. And I, I just I have this next little half a sentence here highlighted all by itself because it, I just it just want to placard it. We shall look for nothing better, nothing higher. Right. In in all that I do, in whatever vocation I'm in, whatever time management or or uh, a diet, or those are my things recently. I don't know what yours are, but whatever I'm out there seeking in this world, I will find and I shall ultimately look for nothing higher. And it's my faith alone in the Word of God that continues to make it so that you can live in your vocation. You can engage the world. You have to. But your faith is going to preserve you from trusting in it. Your trust will alone ultimately be placed in Jesus. And so this is like, to me, I guess it's just, it's part of the gospel to me. It's just good news that I, I shall look, I, I have nothing more to look for. I have nothing more to find. Though they take my life, goods, fame, child, wife, though these all be gone, it's, it's finished, right? It's done. The kingdom remains. Yeah, the, 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 the simple gift of Christ, his death and resurrection is the, the greatest treasure in all of the universe. And, and there is nothing more precious to us. And it is the possession of every Christian. And um, and be, because of this, it's not like um, one person is uh, richer than another or more uh, highly exalted or, or more perfect or, or more sanctified or in some ways more complete. No, we, we all have the fullness of God delivered to us in the in the preaching of the gospel. And it doesn't get it doesn't get better than that. It, it doesn't it can't get better than that. There is nothing better than this truth that my God is my brother and my my savior my the sufferer in my place so that i can have salvation and um and the the idea that you know through the mind we find a more profound truth or for through the will we find a, a more um perfect life or or through whatever mystical stuff we find a, a, a more intense experience this is all illusion because we have the riches of god in christ already yeah, this is the attack against evolutionary religion, right? Uh, that we started with some sort of primitive awareness of God and come to a greater and greater knowledge and awareness of the divine, that religion, in a sense, is always improving upon itself. This has to do with Peeper's next point, right? Uh, but it applies here as well. 
Uh, no, in fact, with the vicarious satisfaction, you have uh, uh, religion, absolutely. And, and the religion that, uh, that, that, that God gives to us <laughs> is that his son has died for us to take away all of our sins. There's nothing better that could be said, um, and there's nothing better that could be given to men. And uh, you, you don't have to be old enough to obtain to this wisdom. In fact, uh, it is given even to the little baby that's being baptized on Sunday morning. There was a video that came out that made the rounds a couple of years ago that was very popular. It was called Jesus Hates Religion. And at the time, it was supposed to be really, it thought of itself as very cutting edge, a brand new idea. It's kind of an old idea, actually, <clears throat> at least at least 100 years old, if not more. But it's kind of flipping everything on its head a little bit and get it wrong. Because the fact is, Jesus doesn't hate religion. Jesus doesn't love religion. Jesus is religion, right? He, he, he actually is spirituality at its highest level. There is nothing to add or take away from it. It's, he's, he's religion that's been done for you. I mean, it's just so marvelous an idea. And, you know, you kind of get caught in these petty movements of, of the, uh, the, the how, how do I say this? Uh, petty movements of the winds of the, the zeitgeist, the age of our time in which we live, in which this teaching comes and this teaching comes. We're always looking for the novel thing, something new new to make us feel like, oh, maybe this time we'll kind of, we'll turn our church around, we'll, we'll turn our church buddy around, we'll, we'll turn our country around. And in, in, at the end of the day, the, the real gospel is like, just sit still, shut up, open your mouth, here comes some bread and wine. Stop arguing. <laughs> right? Yep. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says. That's it. And that's it. This is, it reminds me of what Luther, when Luther talks about how he says, I too am a doctor of theology, but every day I read my catechism. In other words, this is, it's, it's where we start and finish. Uh, the, the God the Father and his gift of creation. God the Son is incarnation and death and resurrection. God the Spirit and his gift in the word that sanctifies. This is, doesn't, it's not, there's nothing, there's nothing more. It's, that's there's nothing beyond it. This happens in evangelical churches where, you know, the gospel's for the unbeliever to get people in, but then you advance to the law. You go to the next level. That's always the talk. We got next, we got to go to the next level. There is no next level. If you have Christ and him crucified, if you have the vicarious satisfaction, there's nothing beyond that. You, you, you're in heaven already. <laughs> you can't go any higher. The final thought of this paragraph on the top of page 37 is that it is the sacred duty, and I think that's pretty powerful language there, of theological professors, that is, anybody who's teaching people to be pastors, frankly, anybody who's teaching people to be believers, to warn their students most earnestly. No, I mean, he's just piling it on, sacred duty, warning, earnestly, against the modern theories of atonement, some of which directly reject Christ's vicarious satisfaction as too juridical, that is, uh, too too much justice, uh, too much uh, judgment or, or law court language. It's not really what the Bible is about. Too perfunctory, while others charge it with insufficiencies. I think there's kind of two edges here, and this kind of moving toward closing comments here as well, guys. But the one edge is, is he's emphasizing again how ridiculously central the vicarious atonement is, and he's he's reminding us it's not just the duty to, to preach the truth— is the duty to warn against falsehood too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, it's become popular to talk about theories of the atonement, even in seminaries today, you know? So there's Gustav Aulen and his various, uh, uh, how he divided up the uh, theories of the atonement into three different classes, right? There was the theory where Jesus is your example. 
Uh, there's apparently a Christus Victor theory where, where Jesus uh, is marching off to war by dying on the cross and defeating Satan under his feet. And then there's the uh, Anselmic theory of the atonement, which is probably, uh, in Aulen's mind, the closest to what uh, Pieper is calling the vicarious satisfaction. Uh, it, it's, it's a good warning uh, that we, this isn't something to be played around with in, in an academic mode, you know, uh, that we, we ought not to look at the cross of Jesus as if it is a theological specimen to be dissected upon the, the, the table of inquiry, uh, but rather it is a holy and pure and precious thing. And it is the uh, possession, the great possession of uh, theological educators you know, so that when they uh, hold forth uh, the book of Romans and the teaching concerning the vicarious satisfaction, when they hold forth the entirety of the Holy Scriptures, there should be no doubt upon the, about the kind of work that's going on on the cross, that Jesus is your sin bearer. He is your substitute, right? Uh, he suffers for the sins of the whole world. And through his uh, death, uh, uh, he, uh, he satisfies uh, uh, God's wrath. Uh, God's anger comes to an end in this death and that he propitiates God, right? That God smiles once again upon man uh, because his son has put to death all of his anger against him. That is our great possession. That is our treasure. And the second we step away from the vicarious satisfaction, we are not Christian anymore. It is an astonishing sort of thing that the greatest gift of the whole world, the blood of Jesus, the most precious thing that we have, uh, we say, oh, no, we can do better. We can find something nicer. You know, the greatest uh, truth and promise, which is the death of Jesus for us in our place, enduring, like Pastor Flammy said, enduring God's wrath so that we can endure his grace, this greatest thing uh, we, we toss aside and, and replace or even argue against. It does, it's insanity. And it, if, if anything would show us the depth of our sin, th this should do it that theologians who have been given this great treasure, rather than extolling it, rejoicing it, and handing it out, would in fact try to put it aside and fight against it and assault it and give something that in their own mind seems better. This is a this is a lie. In fact, it's the lie. Uh, and so we come back to what Pieper's given us here, that this truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus, his vicarious satisfaction, is the perfection of the church and it is the perfection of the Christian. It's the perfection of our own conscience. It's the thing that makes us whole and complete. It's when this word of Jesus on the cross to tell us die, it's finished. When that echoes in our own conscience, then we have that very perfection, which he won for us there. And and rather than fighting against it, really the, the goal of the church and of the pastor and of the theologian and of every father and mother teaching their children is to put this into our ears so that the Holy Spirit can press it into our hearts and, and use it to give us the righteousness of Christ. It's beautiful stuff. My guests, Pastor Brian Flammy and Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, they are teamwork or team team members, joint pastors at uh, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us today. You got it. Happy to do it. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO the messenger of good news, and we certainly hope you heard that good news in this last hour. Cross Defense is listener-supported. That means we rely on your giving to KFUO to keep Cross Defense on the air and coming to you via the Internet. So if you haven't yet become an annual contributor to KFUO Radio, consider doing so, and then let them know that your reason is because you want more Cross Defense. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, right after the text we left off on, says this. I know you've heard this before. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died 
for the ungodly. That's enough. That's all that's needed. The blood of God, the death of God, far from being the great despair which collapsed the universe on itself, turns out to be uh, the greatest joy, which upends evil on itself, swallows it whole, spits it out. The monster of uncertainty, you know, a stuffed toy that's been crushed. The devil, as a great archangel, nothing but a, a, a lizard to be cast into a pit of fire that's prepared for him and from which he will never escape. But the, the key here is that we were, we were still weak. We are still weak. He knew what he was doing. He knew we couldn't save ourselves. And he came and he did it anyway. That's absolute. And anybody who wants to add to that or take away from it, as Pastor Flammy said so well, well, they, they're stepping outside the absoluteness. They're stepping outside the absolute shun. And all you got left there is, well, fear and darkness. I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk saying that's not where you are, my friend, because you're covered by the blood of Jesus. We'll catch you next time on Cross Defense. Rock on.